So my name is Jasmine. I'm your host of Rebuilding Government, a podcast about the crisis of trust in government and the brilliant people rebuilding it in its wake. Today, we're welcoming Pete Davis to the podcast. He's a writer and civic reformer with a wide-ranging background. He's campaigned for minimum wage increases in prison reform, founded a venture-backed tiny house startup, and is now forwarding a national policy platform to mobilize grassroots democratic reform around the country. How are you doing, Pete? I'm doing great. So glad to be on here, Jasmine. Yeah, so glad you're on as well. Um, so the first thing I wanted to say is that you have a pretty diverse background, but you've organized your wide-ranging work around two primary goals. You call them deepening American democracy and deepening American solidarity. Could you talk a little bit more about what each of those are? Yeah, um, I think about them in the simplest way to think about them is maybe in terms of like vertical and horizontal. So democracy to me is a lot about the vertical. It's about um, an aversion to hierarchy and what that means in a deep way. Um, democracy in the deepest sense of the word to me means that everyone um, has the freedom uh, to participate in power, uh, that, they, um, that they can co-create our shared world. Um, and so democracy, you know, when we talk about democracy, we usually think democracy is just about voting and elections. But to me and to like democratic theorists like John Dewey or Roberto Unger or Elizabeth Anderson, uh, democracy, that's just one key of the keyboard of democracy. There's, you know, 88 other things that democracy is about. And to me, it's, you know, it's about strengthening people to participate in co-creating our world, to participate in self-government. Two, it's about opening up power um, to more people in more ways, opening up economic power, opening up government power, opening up cultural power. Um, and so that's what I mean by democracy. It's we're all we're all participating in governing the forces that govern our lives. Um, solidarity, I think of as horizontal because it's about um coming together. It's about seeing each other's dreams as our own. It's about weaving our stories together so that we're not all separate. It's that we're, you know, as, as Martin Luther King says, we're uh, weaved into a single, uh, uh, you know, cloth of humanity. Um, and so, uh, you know, a shorthand I sometimes say of how they're connected is democracy is about more people realizing their dreams and uh, solidarity is about more people seeing each other's dreams as their own. And I, what I think the problem in America today is we have a democratic de deficit and we have a solidarity deficit. You know, people aren't seeing each other uh, as part of shared projects, solidarity. They're not seeing each other as, you know, we're, they're not seeing each other as bound up together in, a, uh, in mutuality. Uh, well, you know, we're believing, as John Donne uh, told us not to believe, that we're each an island. Um, uh, and when the bell tolls, uh, it, it tolls for the other person and not for ourselves, like the old poem for whom the bell tolls. And then we have this huge deficit of democracy. You know, we, if we see freedom as participation in power, we have a lot of threats to our freedom because there are so many forms of uh, power that are run by the few that should be opened up to the many. Um, we have, you know, uh, we have forces that are weakening our bodies, weakening our minds, weakening our communities, that's hobbling our ability to participate. And then we have forms that are closing our economy off to the participation of people, closing our uh, government off to the participation of people, and with climate change, closing our future off uh, to 
kind of the participation of the young. So um, that's what uh, that's what I want to fight back. I want to deepen our democracy, more power to more people in more ways, and I want to deepen our solidarity, more people seeing each other kind of as part of the same thing. That's a really eloquent way of putting it. So I know that one of the ways that you're currently uh, forwarding this mission is working on an initiative that you founded called the Democratic Alternative, which also just has one of the nicest pitch decks I've ever seen for a political group. Um, so one of the things you called that initiative is the ALEC of the left. And ALEC is not usually um, an organization that I associate with democracy or solidarity. It's um, sort of a conservative network of pol- of like policies uh, that is spread to- across like media organizations, across local politicians in the country to form basically the same set of like Tea Party era super conservative policies. So when you say that you want democratic alternative to be the ALEC of the left, what does that mean? Yeah, so we have the of the left part to sh- say that you know, we don't like Alec. Yeah, <laughs> um, so, so um, the idea, so we recently changed our name actually to a slightly normaler name, which is, and we haven't gone live with this yet. So all of our old materials have that. We call ourselves the Democracy Policy Network. And you can find out more at listeners at democracypolicy.network. Uh, it's just the title with a dot in the name. Um, and the whole idea is that we believe that there's this democracy movement out there in the country. You know, it's a shorthand we use for all these people that are demanding more power to more people in more ways. Black Lives Matter, the Sunrise Movement, what's come out of Occupy, what's come out of, you know, people fighting for worker co-ops and community wealth building, Um, what we're seeing with the flourishing of DSAs and our revolutions and indivisibles, things coming out of the Bernie and Warren campaign. Um, There's a, there's a, AOC and the squad, there's a huge push across the country for people that are, you know, demanding democracy in the deepest sense of the term. And what we're trying to do with the Democracy Policy Network, what we were trying to do with its old name, the Democratic Alternative, is we want to help gather, package, organize, and amplify the concrete ideas that can realize the ideals of democracy. So there are ideas popping up in states across the country. In Vermont and Maine, they have prison voting. In uh, California, they just passed this new way to help uh, campuses vote. In North Dakota, there is um, a public bank that brings wealth and keeps it in the state. There are people fighting for worker cooperatives, people fighting for employee stock ownership plans, people fighting for a Green New Deal in the states, people fighting for community land trusts and tenants unions and a revived labor movement. Um, And there are all these ideas. And what we want to do is we want to be a clearinghouse for those ideas so that when someone runs for office, you know, runs for governor of Florida, runs for uh, state senate in Nevada, um, they can have quick access, quick and clear access to the best of the democracy movement. So we're not a think tank thinking up the ideas. We're a clearinghouse trying to gather, package, organize, and amplify them so that more of these state legislators, we're at the state level, can um, and governors and attorney generals and lieutenant governors who are part of this movement can start thinking about themselves as part of this kind of multi-state movement uh, at the state level of deepening democracy. And and we want to help provide a little bit of intellectual infrastructure to those doing that amazing work. So if you're not a think tank, then what kind of uh, intellectual, what does what exactly does that intellectual infrastructure look like? 
So a think tank usually tries to shepherd a policy from like idea to existence. So it usually has like a PhDs and economists running the original numbers on it, putting out the original reports on it. So we're not going to have, you know, economists and public policy PhDs, you know, coming up with the first ever plan for something. Um, what we're going to try to do is take the stuff that's been thought up by these think tanks or been tried in certain states or been, you know, there is an activist group somewhere pushing it. And we're going to gather that, put it in an organized way, package it in a friendly way for state legislators, put it in an organized way in an open democracy agenda, and then amplify it to a network of state legislators. So we are like a middleman clearinghouse between these bold wonks that are thinking up the future in think tanks and activist groups and state houses across the country and connect them to these bold legislators that are running to kind of change their state house and are fighting the good fight in the minority, you know, as they grow um, and build on the state level, their state level democracy uh, deepening pushes. And we stand in the middle and try to, you know, help organize the two and help uh, clarify the two and help get them connected in the most efficient ways. And the center of gravity of that is have an open agenda that, you know, takes the best of the wonks, puts it together in an organized way and gets it to the legislators in the format that that's most useful to them. Okay, interesting. Um, so I assume we've talked to a lot of uh, different political activists, campaigns, etc. in the process of working on this. And I guess I'm interested what the status quo looks like in terms of how well different groups are connected to each other across the nation. Like before before this infrastructure or whatever exists, like how well does, say, like a progressive movement in San Francisco know what's happening in New York? Are there already like different national networks or is it just a very fragmented landscape where you do think that the deficit is this kind of unity and information exchange? Well, let me start on the abstract level answering that, which is one thing you're noticing here is that the way that things happen and move in civics is what I call networked localism. So um, that's that I believe is the most efficient way that things move in civics. You do something in a deep way in a place and you focus on doing it in a really good, deep way. Um, and then other people do deep things in a place and focus on really doing it in a good, deep way. And then the goal is to network these locales together to kind of spread like wildfire. This isn't the only model that things grow big. There is another model, which is um, some might call like centralized management, which is you do something in a place in a big way and it goes well and you are get all the success and you get all this money and then you like set up an office in Washington you uh, get you know you build up a donor base you build up a mailing list and you're trying to central you know centrally manage things from Washington that usually doesn't work because as you scale you kind of uh, become bureaucratic you lose connection with the original work that you were doing um, and you become kind of command and control top-down centralizers. Um, so there's a wonderful book about this called Diminished Democracy uh, from by Theta Scotchpole. I have it right here. Let me get the subtitle down exactly. From Membership to Management in American Civic Life. And so everyone has been taking the centralized manager uh, management option 
And what I really strongly push is to try to think about the networked localism option. And so what I love about like, you know, uh, Sunrise, the Sunrise Movement is they have chapters and the chapters have real action in the chapters. What I loved about Occupy was they said, do it yourself in your own locale. Um, what I love about DSA is they're very chapter focused. Um, and so what we need, so here's a great example of people that are networked well. These lefty DA races, district attorney races. So you start with Larry Krasner in Philadelphia running as a, from being a public defender to running to be the top prosecutor of a city. He does this amazing job at that. And then suddenly Tiffany Caban is running in uh, the Bronx, I think the Bronx or Queens. You suddenly have Parisa Degani Tafti running in Arlington. You have Steve Descano running in Fairfax. And then you have this amazing uh, thing that happened in San Francisco with like an even more radical person running and winning in, uh, as a DA. And then there are groups that are helping network and connect these people doing these local things. I think there's like Real Justice PAC and some others um, that are helping bring the best of what's happening locally in these DA races and spreading it out. And instead of like top-down command and control, they're saying, let's just take the best practices, make sure you're all talking, make sure you're sharing tips and tricks. Um, and, uh, and so that's a great example of, of uh, networking on the progressive level. For sure. Um, so I guess one thing that I noticed there is that a lot of these large like national movements sort of start at these, as you say, local successes, whether it's a DA race, whether it's a policy in one city. Uh, so I would say that while activists, while people who are very deeply involved in politics do understand the importance of these local chapter race movements, probably the median voter is a lot more focused on national politics than local issues. Why do you think that people do you well first of all do you think that people care too much about national politics and then if so how would you get them uh, the average person who might not be involved in campaigns to get them to care a lot more about local issues The key is we need to think about national politics through local politics it's not either or because it's very important to feel, you know, it's very hard to do civic work and we need to take any energizing uh, resource when we can get it. And so, you know, thinking you're part of a national movement, thinking you're solving, you know, you're helping ameliorate some big national problem helps give you the energy to do the work. But um, the work needs to be on, on all levels. You need to do the work at the local level with real people in community, changing your locale to kind of align with the national movement. But then that group can become a base of action that can also help with presidential campaigns or governor's campaigns or city campaigns or neighborhood campaigns. And so the reason the local is important is because the local is the place you can have real in-person community with other people. And doing local work helps knit that community together and helps you kind of, like there's so many amazing things about local work. One is it helps knit the community together, like a group of people that give each other energy to fight for some national cause or global cause. Um, two is you can actually advance work in a real way at the local level immediately. Um, 
Three is at the local level, you can do mutual aid, not just change reform. At the local level, you can actually directly help people in front of you or change places in front of you. And four is you get the feedback of reality. And it's really important that activists have feedback loops of reality that kind of tell them what's really working, you know, what people really want. You know, it's important to have theory. It's important to have visions. It's important to have structural ideas. But it's also important to get kind of the energy and information of being on the ground. And so I, I really don't think it's an either or. It's it's that we got to work on all levels, but at the local, you can actually have a community um, of that receives information, does mutual aid, does local reform and advances things, and is a group of people that can work on things beyond the local reform together. Um, and, you know, if we, the, what I am against on the national stuff is not caring about national politics. It's very important who the president is. Um, it's very important, you know, what's happening in Congress. But it's that there is no mediating layer between just you alone on your, on your, computer chair and looking at a screen about national and international things. That's not going to be a sustainable way to care and work on it, on national things. It, the care and work is energized by doing local work. And this isn't just for activists. This is for people who have normaler lives, you know, like, like who, and who aren't as turned on to politics. When you work, like I recommend work in an embedded thing will slowly broaden your thought about the thing. So if we get people working in homeless shelters, if we get people working on affordable housing in their town, if we get people working on preserving the local park next to them, slowly they'll learn about, you know, they'll have an investment in slowly learning about housing on the national level, you know, conservation on the national level, um, poverty alleviation on the national level, but it will come and be energized by the local work. And so the disembeddedness is the problem. That's what leads to on the left, you know, just kind of sitting angrily in front of your screen and on the right leads to fascism sometimes where if you're lonely and all you have is your fearless national leader, you know, that's, that's, that's building an anti, a non-democratic soul and you need to build a, you know, a democratically spirited heart, you know, that, that is, that kind of is, pluralistically involved in multiple things and is open to the world and not kind of being conformed to what's being told to you on your screen. Sure. Um, do you think that technology, the rise of social media plays a role in that disembeddedness or do you think it's tapping into something that already very much existed and merely amplifying it? Technology, I really believe technology is neutral. It's how we use it. You know, and it's how we design it. We can design technology that leads to more better things or worse things. So, for example, you know, I think I think we need more localist technology. We need community things that tie you to, you know, that help you spread information, like information clearing houses for a town that help you get involved in things. The technology that helps you find out about civic events or helps you get connected to a group, the technology that helps build a consciousness like these podcasts and these little magazines, these little boats, you know, in the water with like 100,000 followers that, that are kind of building national consciousness around things. That's great. And if those, the people are using that technology to push us 
to think about more things, to get involved in more things, that's great. You know, I wouldn't believe what I believe if I didn't have access to current affairs, if I didn't have access to localist blogs like Front Porch Republic and, you know, my Catholic lefty communities that I'm into through Solidarity Hall and these other uh, Commonweal magazine. I wouldn't have been able to like those might not exist. And even if they did exist, I might not have known about them or like been willing to pay the subscriber fee to get it sent to my house. Um, the downside though, is if you let the technology just become a feed of anger, if you let it just become a screen that just gives you entertainment um, and not become something that you, it, it's, it's whether we're going to be controlled by it or it's going to be controlled by us. It's like the old phrase, uh, a good servant and a bad master technology is a bad master if you just let the feeds flow you to where they want to flow you to because they're literally designed to flow you to stay on them and click on a lot of advertising. But if you become, let them be your servant, then, um, then, you know, it's this wonderful magical tool that we all know. So, um, it's up to you. Yeah, so one platform I feel like I used to have a lot of faith in, in terms of the kind of platform that could maybe make people feel more connected to each other, engage in civic issues to focus on the local, um, was Nextdoor. But I feel like today, Nextdoor, which is a community-based social media platform, a neighborhood-based social media platform, has really become known for being like a hotbed of nimbyism, of anti-homeless work, of like anti-affirmative action work, and all of these like sort of toxic politics where um, maybe like the older generations in the suburbs go on this website to sort of rant about how they're angry about the immigrants or the homeless or the new people who are in their communities. What do you think went wrong there? Yeah, so you're actually asking the right person here. This is the one thing I actually... um have a specific vantage point on because for three years I ran a competitor to next door oh, wow. um, from my sophomore year of college until one year out. So about 20, 2009 to 2013, I ran this organization called commonplace and commonplace was about local community information infrastructures. It was every town would get a commonplace or if your town was too big, it would be a neighborhood. And the commonplace was going to be your online bulletin board where you'd find out about mundane things like I need to borrow a ladder or big things like let's fight city hall together or the city's doing an initiative. And so it mixed the next door stuff, which was like, I need to borrow a ladder. Do you know a good dentist, et cetera, et cetera. With, uh, look at what's happening in our neighborhood with civic stuff. That's like, here's the town newspaper on here. Here's all the town civic groups on here that can post announcements. Here's an events board. Here's different discussion groups. And, um, and we had the spirit that commonplace was about building good neighbors that do things together, come together as neighbors, um, it's about joining something, you know, you join it and you live up to norms when you're in it. And it's about kind of ascending to be a, a real citizen of your town. And then Nextdoor came along and they had a very similar idea, but slightly different design. And this is why des institutional design matters. Like institutional design is everything in politics. Uh, it's not everything, but it's a lot of things in politics. And so they designed it a little differently. They made it about the micro neighborhoods, you know, the 300 houses around kind of a swirling cul-de-sac area or whatever. Um, they made it, they really doubled down on the easiest part, which was the services and goods sharing. 
Um, they noticed that people were talking about security a lot on there and they doubled down on the security rhetoric. They got police involved and had police be the center of next door. They said, this is a thing for you as a consumer, not for you as a good neighbor. You can get stuff out of your neighbors. You can get security. You can get cons goods. You can get information. It wasn't asking you to raise up and be a, a bigger thing. They excised and like kind of sidelined the design of civic life outside of the neighborhood like this is a town with a mayor this is a town with a school this is a town with civic groups and churches and and organizations um this is a town with events this is a town with a newspaper and um uh and so what they got by following kind of the base desires of people who wanted like what can I immediately get as an individual out of a neighborhood is they wanted security they wanted recommendations and then they they even downplay the names of the people so they make it about the information they make it seem like you know they have Casper mattress ads in the middle of their newsletters so they're saying like this isn't something owned by the town this is just like a a Silicon Valley tool for you to get something out of it and institutions form the way we act and so if you design an institution that way, people are going to start acting that way. If you design it in another way, people act in another way. And so like the institutional design plus the spirit in which you explain what the institution is doing affect how people do it. So um, there, this is my challenge to everyone is there is space for better local information infrastructures out there. And we could design them in a better way. And um, I don't think, don't give up on this just because Nextdoor has become um, a, a dangerous thing. Um, uh, and yeah, so, and I, I love, one final thing on that is just think about the range of beautiful institutional designs. Like one of my civic institutional hall of fames is Alcoholics Anonymous. Like, think about it, they designed it as like you would take ownership of the space that you're creating, we're going to make it really non-bureaucratic, really non-commercial. We're not going to like sell you, you know, we're not going to let capitalism infuse its way into it where we're going to like sell you all the books and all the add-ons and whatever. We're going to have you kind of commit to being part of something bigger than yourself when you're in this, humble yourself when you join it. We're going to have it kind of have this spirit of mutual aid where you have a sponsee and you have a sponsor and you're watching over each other. And that is a totally different spirit than all these, like then another type of support group or another type of support group or another type of support group. The spirit in which you do something and the way in which you design it has consequences. And so we need a lot of experiments in institutional design. And so um, uh, Nextdoor is one experiment and we're seeing the results. And I think there are many more to come uh, with local information infrastructures. Yeah, Alcoholics Anonymous is um, an interesting example because it manages to take people often from like very, very different walks of life and bring them together in that very common equal space where they do care for each other. Um, it reminds me of, I often hear the counter argument to some of this solidarity stuff and is that like oh you can only have like true solidarity true like neighborliness and strong local communities when you don't have a heterogeneous community that having communitarianism trades off with liberal values like diversity and inclusion because like if new people are always coming in and out then you don't have this like 
space of trust, this long history or shared identity to um, base your trust on, I guess. And I, I would say that Alcoholics Anonymous is one example of how you don't need to have known each other for years and years and years and have the same ancestors and such in order to establish that. Um, so it is a really interesting example and one that I didn't necessarily consider social infrastructure before. Amen. And you totally hit on a point here that's key. And that's why I say both of them in when I say kind of my mission statement in life, in my work life, that solidarity and democracy are intention. And they don't have to be intention. You can like, you, I believe we can get there where we have solidaristic democracy or democratic solidarity, whatever you want to call it. Um, but in some ways, if you push it one hard, it's sometimes easier if you just don't care about the other half. Like if you want, if you like take the military, for example, they need solidarity really quickly, you know? Um, and so what they do is they, they kind of throw democracy under the bus. They, they have a very hierarchical organization. Um, and so hierarchy is a very quick way to get like is, makes it a little easier to get solidarity. Just like have strict rules, have a strict leader, tell everyone to get in line and then like throw on some solidarity based things like kind of having logos and insignias and chants and things like that, um, which the military does a lot of. Nothing, I'm not critiquing the military here. I'm just noticing some civic forms um, of what happens there. Like they might argue that that's what's needed for their mission. But it's also easy to get democracy and kind of throw solidarity on the bus and say like we're gonna have you know everyone will vote we'll make sure that everyone has lawyers and you can kind of have your access to everything um and we can settle everything through votes and laws and lawyers and um and and you know for a while um that's how you like as long as everyone in this kind of crazy totally heterogeneous, like heterogeneous community. You don't have to all know each other as long as you kind of participate in the democratic institutions and respect each other's like formal equality. Um, but in the end, they both break down if you don't have each other. So here are the ways the two break down. So like solidarity breaks down without democracy in kind of like a cosmic way. Like, like, like a lot of people talk about this in kind of like a deep cosmically spiritual way like Martin Luther King had this thing you know and like uh, James Baldwin had these things where they said like you might have peace it might appear peaceful in this very hierarchical southern town and we might appear to be agitators but underneath the surface there's not peace because underneath the surface of unjust hierarchy is like the rumbling fundamental fact about the human soul that we don't want to be oppressed and the more surprising one, we don't want to be oppressors, you know, um, and there's an instability to hierarchy, which they always used to talk about, you know, all the civil rights people um, used to talk about, uh, you know, there is, you're not going to have peace. It's not a lasting peace. That's why they say you need a just and lasting peace. Um, no justice, no peace is not just a demand. It's also like a fact about human society. There will be rumblings eventually. On the democracy without solidarity side, it's what we see kind of the kind of Whiggish communitarians talk about all the time. Like, we can all have our lawyers, we can all have our votes, 
we can all have our demands, but if we don't like love each other as a community, if we don't see each other as neighbors, the norms, you know, as, as you see in like thousands of op-eds, the norms eventually break down, you know? And, um, and as Danielle Allen writes, there is an act of love in continuing, like neighborly love, in continuing in democracy, even if we lose, like it's a continuous game where, you know, you need to lose some votes and still want to participate in the country. And if you don't have solidarity, if you don't see each other's dreams as their as your own, you're not going to continue to play that game, and um, and democracy will break down. So that's why I think we need to deepen both at once. Right. I think the idea that formal equality isn't enough, I really speaks to me. It's something that oftentimes. Uh, I would say younger people, um, the neoliberal movement, a lot of people who are thinking through, who are in these big cities where like you can establish all your relationships transactionally. Um, it's, it's hard to remember that simply having the ability to write a contract or to make a transaction is not enough for the basis of a lasting equality just in the way that a hierarchy cannot create a lasting equality. Um, Amen. So, yeah. So another point that sort of relates to that is I know that you've noticed and I've noticed a rise of, I would say, irony in politics um, along the lines of Trump, the Gravel teens, even like Andrew Yang and all of these like self-aware memes um, that are honestly very entertaining. But I also wonder whether you think that they are alienating in any sense, whether they prevent solidarity, prevent us from seeing politics as this like real thing that is embedded in our everyday relationships. Like, what do you think about the rise of irony in politics? So um, one of my com like I, I I'm a comedy fan and nerd. And um, one of my my heroes are in comedy are actually the generation, the Gen X kind of irony comedian. So the, the like two greats, I would say, are David Letterman and The Simpsons. <laughs> and um, <laughs> what David Letterman did, is, and, you know, you start the 80s, basically, with this very maudlin, very sappy national culture, you know, and, you know, literally people were saying, like, think of the children, you know, when making their arguments. And they were, um, like, uh, clutching pearls. And they were, um, you know, saying, you know, you'd have these people like George H.W. Bush being like, ah, shucks, you know, like, these protesters are really threatening our communities. And, you know, we got to get up and, and, uh, you know, eat at our dinner tables and say our grace, and you know, like all these kind of things like to wash over deep realities that were happening in the 80s. Like there was a violence underneath the surface level sincerity, like over some sappy sincerity. Like Ro Ronald Reagan was having like events where he'd like go to the Statue of Liberty and they'd wave American flags and he'd talk about the founders. And meanwhile, like there was deindustrialization, there was the drug war, there was the rise, like marriage was declining at the time. There was an increase in the birth rate. People were not living in families like this. And, um, and like, you know, there, and so you had like another examples like David Lynch, like doing these shows about surface level suburbia, but underneath there's this eeriness of something going on. And so you have David Lynch doing those movies. You have the Simpsons, like 
making fun of you know all of like it's basically the the simpsons is this giant machine to make fun of like every single thing we hold like every single sappy thing in society because they can talk about all of society because they have a character for every type of cliche in society and then you have david letterman doing that with like um with like celebrity culture where he'd like ask a celebrity like you know isn't like reveal like kind of how it's all kind of shallow and that kind of breaking of the soil is very important because if you have lies at the top of your politics if you have like smarm lies sappiness about like what's going on you need someone to break the soil um it's that sappiness is a form of like civic concrete it means nothing can change because we're all just having so much sentiment about everything and so i'm really thankful for the sledgehammers like I'm thankful for even the modern millennial irony people who took some sledgehammers of like a resurgence of the sappiness. You know, we had a president um, that had a mission accomplished banner and he wore his flight suit on it. Well, like, running a war where the mission was not accomplished <laughs> and the mission was bad. And it, you know, uh, a million people, you know, hundreds of thousands of people died displaced you know, awful things to our own soldiers, awful waste of money and, and blood and, and dignity for our country. Um, and meanwhile, there's a sappiness there. And I think a lot of the millennial irony took on that sappiness um, and was a sledgehammer that took to the concrete. But here's the other side of it. Taking the hammer to the concrete is only the first step. It is necessary, but not sufficient. The next step after you loosen the soil is to plant a seed. And to plant a seed requires a whole lot of sincerity. It requires sincerity beyond what is realistic. Because you have to kind of have, here's to the, you got to have, here's to the crazy ones. You have to have, you know, I'm going to plant the seed and I'm going to believe in this and I'm going to look ridiculous and believing in this and I'm going to foster that and cultivate that and I believe in my heart this is going to be an oak one day. And that oak is something, you know, our children and our children's children is going to live under. And so you really need that sincerity underneath it. So you need the irony and you need the sledgehammer to break up concrete, to kind of knock down things that, that don't have truth in them anymore. And then you need the sincerity to, um, to uh, start growing things again. So I'm just, you know, I'm sorry there's not like a stronger answer than we need both. But um, I, you know, we, I, and, and I would encourage our generation to, um, I think we did really good at Millennial Irony and we did a lot of good sledgehammer work and I would encourage us to like build that other muscle inside of us, which is the kind of sincerity muscle, um, cause we're going to need it and you can't just continue being ironic, especially about our own work that we're doing. Like to do a movement is going to need a lot of corniness and a lot of, uh, uh, sentimentality and a lot of uh, kind of uh, sincere action. And so, um, so uh, let, let's work on that too. Yeah, I think some of the, uh, some of what to me is most refreshing about the newer activist movements like March for Our Lives, like the Sunrise Movement, is that the same, I would say like this is a very Gen Z thing of like making the memes and going, being very online, but then actually converting that righteous anger uh, into a real movement politics. So I wanted to pivot a little bit um, to the idea of mission-driven careers. 
just because that's something that a lot of young people I know for me like in college always trying to figure out not only how can I make the biggest impact which is one question people ask but also like where do I want to make that impact and like what is the thing that I want to dedicate myself to um, so I know that you've talked a lot about the importance of young people developing a coherent worldview and then sort of identifying uh, the role that they're going to play there. So could you talk a little bit about both um, your own story and how you develop your worldview, identified what your role was going to be, and then I guess advice for people going through that process? Um, yeah, so I yeah, so let me talk about those two things first. So one is developing a worldview and then the second is uh, figuring out your place in it. So I think we don't talk about developing a worldview enough um, because here's why I think it's important. Um, if you, um, you like, you have a chance at college to start making, like a worldview helps you make sense of the world. It makes you um, be able to uh, not, so one thing, like here here are dangers with not having a worldview. One is you think everything is just common sense, one thing after another. There's just an event and then another event and then another event and another event, and you're just processing them each ad hoc. And, um, and when you process everything ad hoc, you think you're like, uh, and you're using the kind of like dominant ideas of the day that form common sense. You think you're like, uh, acting freely and just doing common sense things. But what you're really doing is your, what is common sense and what are the messages that are telling you how to process each of those things ad hoc? It's actually a worldview. It's just the dominant hegemonic worldview. Um, and so you're letting someone else write your worldview if you're not going to have one. Um, because it, it, like I some you know it's like the worldview of the editorial pages and the kind of common magazines that you read if you're like kind of someone in the discourse. Then a lot of times people that's what I call reading zero books. I call this zero books, one books, two books. Um, that's reading proverbially zero books. Reading one book is sometimes people are experiencing the ad hoc stuff, and then suddenly they read like one thing, one really strong worldview, and it blows their mind. Like on the alt-right, they call it being like red-pilled or something. Yeah. <laughs> like you read this thing and then suddenly everything makes sense now and you have a way to explain everything. And, um, and you join the kind of cult of the one book um, because you don't stop after that. Like everything, suddenly you're so excited by the pattern that this person explained to you that you suddenly let it overtake you. And what I always encourage people to do is push past zero books to one book, get excited, be happy that someone taught you like about a worldview, but then you got to push to a second book, <laughs> like another worldview to bounce off against it, because then that frees you from the cult of the one thing. And then once you have a second book, you'll notice, oh, there are other strong worldviews that organize the world in a different way. And then you can start reading a bunch of those. And then in the compost kind of pile of your brain of reading all of those and kind of having your sense of reality, sense of our time, you know, listening to your heart, you can start developing your own way of seeing the world. And then that is something that frees you from kind of joining the cult of the one book, but it also frees you from joining the cult of common sense because like the hegemonic worldview. And then that can give you some mastery over kind of seeing the world. Um, and so I think that's really important. Um, 
for you to kind of to be an original and not just be a foot soldier for the first cult that got to you, the first intellectual cult that got to you, or more dominantly a foot soldier for the kind of status quo hegemonic way of thought. Um, and so I did that by, you know, I used to, I did that by kind of collecting heroes. I collect, I got really excited about people. I devour everything they wrote. And then I kind of find another one and devour everything they wrote. So I'll tell you my personal ones. I got really into Ralph Nader. I, you know, I recommend anyone re- watch this movie, Unreasonable Man, um, An Unreasonable Man, which is a documentary about his life. I got really into him. Um, I, um, uh, and I learned all about his way of viewing how like corporations control everything. But then I got really into Robert Putnam, who wrote this wonderful book, Bowling Alone, who talks oh, about yeah. community and communitarianism. Yeah. He's like, he's amazing. And he, he kind of reoriented the way I see everything. It's not just about power politics. It's also about social capital and these kind of organic community structures and the people around similar to Putnam, like Theta Scotchpole, who writes about civic institutional design. Then I got into this guy, Roberto Unger, who has this philosophy of radical democracy. Um, and he taught, you know, he has this kind of way of thinking about how we form our institutions and they form us and it's all about democratic experimentalism of promoting all the you know a flourishing of democratic institutions and speeding up the pace of politics in which we have the democratic experiment then i got into these kind of catholic writers like dorothy day and these kind of radical christians like um like uh martin luther king and um and the solidarity movement. And there's, I got into localism with front porch Republic and solidarity hall. Then I got into kind of community wealth building with Gar Alperovitz um, and like the next system project and like what are democratic forms of economics. And I'm kind of letting this all compost into my brain. And now I kind of have this worldview. That's a mix of deepening democracy and deepening solidarity. Kind of what is the kind of, democratically spirited Christian vision with that, like what is solidarity Catholicism and like it's all mixed in there and it's me. Um, and, um, and now I kind of see, I kind of have different ways of filing things in my head. You can't close yourself off and be too proud of your worldview. You have to have it kind of be updated and meet reality, but it's kind of good to have one and it gives me a solid footing in thinking about the world. So that's my worldview. Um, uh, Anything on that before I kind of jump into, like, how do you position yourself within it? Um, how do you prevent information overload? It's just so much to process. Well, what's great about this, so first off, use your time in college to read a lot of things when you're young um, before you have, like, kids and the responsibility of, like, being married and stuff. So read, like, use this time when you do have more time to do information overload and do it. So that's one thing. But the other thing is actually accepting that you have a worldview. Like if you start developing your vocation, you actually can start limiting things. Like I kind of have reached the point in my life, I'm 30 now, where I have some articles and I see them and my kind of naturally curious self is like, oh, I want to read that. I want to learn about John von Neumann and the origin of computing. And then I kind of say to myself, like maybe if I have some leisure time, I'll do that. But like in my work life, I kind of have a beat and like, I'm not going to be able to really develop the depth of expertise on that beat if I just kind of crazily follow my, my curiosity. So actually my worldview getting me kind of like writing this mission statement for myself, which is kind of like the main work you're going to do, Pete, 
is going to be about deepening democracy and deepening solidarity means I can't, you know, it, it helps focus my information overload. So it actually helps me like see, you know, you gotta, you gotta focus what you're reading and taking in a bit and like develop a little bit of an expertise if you want to have some depth here. And so, um, and nothing against dilettantes, but we have this word dilettante, which is someone who kind of skims on the surface of everything following their curiosity. And I, I kind of don't want to be one. I think it's important to have some dilettantes in society. So nothing against people out there who love skimming on the surface, but I kind of feel a calling. And I think we need more people to feel a calling to kind of develop a depth of understanding about things. And so that actually helps me avoid information overload by honing what I focus on. Super helpful. I think personally, I'm still on a little bit of my scattershot learning about a lot of things phase. But again, like you said, that's sort of what college is for. When you're young, definitely do that. <laughs> so yeah, don't. I know that's a cliche advice, but like, like, like reach out, follow the rabbit holes of the weird. You know, uh, the more the I, I have this real deep informational principle for young people that I, that I tell them, which is like the weirder the like if you're the weirder the better like you got to get your basic foundation of like what the common belief like you got to read your vox.com to understand the common views of everything you know like so make sure you read your vox.com and new york <laughs> times but like the way you're going to get interesting insights in the world is to look into weird subcultures like look read books that are not online, like go to the library and find out about little corner debates of things. So I like got really into this weird Catholic left subculture through this community solidarity hall. And I get sent articles from them that are just so not on the headlines of things like the, you know, it's just this totally alternate universe of information that's important than what I'm seeing on Vox or the New York Times or something. And um, it allows me to have like a truly kind of sideways view on things and be able to see things in a new and fresh way because I'm part of this weird subculture. And, um, and so I'd really encourage people like get into like, you know, get into lost revolutions, get into weird books that were written in the 60s by someone that were like popular among a group of people, but no one has read today, you know. Um, one thing we talk about at Current Affairs, one way I found some kindred spirits with people is three of us had gotten into this weird lost 60s revolutionary Paul Goodman. And he has all these kind of crazy books talking about things like getting cars out of Manhattan and changing the way, like he invented this discipline of psychology called Gestalt psychology. And he um, has, you know, has kind of all these crazy thoughts on the world that uh, that seem alien to now, but it helps us be a fresh perspective. So find the lost revolutionaries, find the kind of figures, read the weird biographies. I, I'd strongly encourage that. For sure. So as we're wrapping up, um, I'm just hoping you could briefly move into the next step of that. Um, what, how did you find your role? Now that you have this worldview, how did you figure out your personal strategy, your career, your vocation in terms of making some dent there? Yeah, so the second part is once you have a worldview, exactly like you say, you got to find out what, well, what role do I place in advancing the causes that are important in my worldview? And um, this is a totally different thing because this is kind of just like, it's much less, you know, pie in the sky, intellectual uh, kind of uh, lofty thought. It's, it's very practical thought. It's like, what is, 
what are the daily activities that I wouldn't get bored with? You know, what is the type of work that I have a unique contribution to that I can do better than other people? I could see myself learning and honing. Like, what is a craft that I would enjoy honing over 40 years? What is a, what is a institutional setting that I, I, I wouldn't feel like I'd want to quit if it got hard? Um, what is something that's not that you know has open slots in it that like needs more people doing um and so you have to just pressure test like am i a writerly person like you know in cause i work on causes a lot so in causes like we need writers we need um institutional uh kind of navigators we need direct service people we need community organizers that love talking like a lot of this is like introversion extroversion um the craft of writing or the craft of relationships or the craft of thinking, you know, or the, um, uh, am I more create like, am I into creativity or am I into kind of doing solid work that's not necessarily creative? Like what's more me? And you just got to find out like, what's the thing that I wouldn't want to quit if it got hard. Um, and so it's less of a kind of lofty, like what is, what is the thing that's needed by the movement? It's more of just a practical, like, what is the role that you could be sustained in? Um, and uh, and I walk down that path a bit. You gotta, you have to, um, you have to uh, do it to see if you can do it. So you have to kind of fake it till you make it, and 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 do a few of these crafts and try them on for size, and see which one is taken by you. So I've discovered. I'm not really a extroverted door knocking, you know, I, I, I do door knocks, door knocking out of duty to the movement. Like I think everyone should do door knocking, but like, I'm not going to do that professionally. I'm not one who like loves, um, I'm not lawyerly. I don't like, like grinding out meticulously particular arguments. Um, I'm not, I don't have the kind of like interpersonal touch that social workers have. That's like the one-on-one -on -one people. I'm like a very readerly, writerly, researchy person. I'm a very like hosting public conversations type person. That's why I host this podcast. And I love, and I've learned that I like love policy. And I could imagine doing policy, even if it was completely unglamorous, even if it got hard, I would still want to do it. And so that's why I do kind of reading, writing, hosting and policy work and so not do necessarily like community organizing labor union building uh kind of uh jazzy you know uh direct service kind of professionally uh so though i think we all in civics have a duty to put in a little legwork on the things that are not necessarily our things to just kind of get a get a sense of all the parts of the movement but kind of my core work is not that so for sure. That's some super salient advice for uh, probably a lot of young people, myself included, who are still figuring it all out. Um, well, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. I know I'd have a billion more things to ask, but you got to go. Um, thank you so much. I really enjoyed hearing from you, Pete. Thanks, Jasmine. Appreciate it. Um, keep up the good fight. Thank you. This is Jasmine again. If you want to learn more about what people are doing to rebuild government, please hit like and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. 
go to rebuildinggovernment.com or tweet us at rebuildinggovernment. If you care what I have to say, my Twitter is at jasminewsm. I'm always looking for friends and feedback. This podcast is part of the Tusky Media Network. You can check out other shows about the world's most impactful and interesting people at tuskymedia.com. And finally, a big thank you to Unit Innovations for sponsoring us. Unit provides technology solutions to governments in order to progress our largest institutions and society. Thank you for listening, everyone. I'll see you next time.